0: Welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Cleantechnica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. Clean Tech Talk is brought to you by Voltus, a leading technology platform connecting distributed energy resources to electricity markets, delivering less expensive, more reliable, and more sustainable electricity. Voltus is on a mission to help solve the climate crisis by unlocking the full value of distributed energy resources, and we want your help getting there. To view our open positions, visit voltusco Cleantechnica. That's www.voltus.co.cleantechnica.
1: Hello and welcome back to another edition of Clean Tech Talks. I'm your host, Michael Bernard, and today I have Paul Martin. He's a senior technical fellow at the international engineering firm Zetan and an experienced chemical engineer, and he spends a lot of his time focusing these
2: days on debunking hopium. Welcome, Paul. Thanks for the introduction, Michael. Just a just a reminder that when I uh, speak on matters like this, I'm speaking my own opinion, which is not bought and paid for by anybody. And my employer, Zetton, has no opinion in these matters. So just making that clear. But Paul is opinionated, and we're going to have to oh, yeah. some... oh, I have lots of opinions. And, <laughs> and I try my best to ground my opinions in fact, to the extent that I can.
1: Today, Paul and I are going to be talking about hydrogen. And specifically, we're going to be riffing off of uh, Michael Liebreich's Clean Hydrogen Ladder, version 4.0. If you haven't seen that, go hunt it down. Liebre- Liebreich is spelled... If memory serves, Leibreich, and he is you know a great commentator, um, one of the founders of Bloomberg New Energy, great person to follow, and he has this hydrogen ladder, and he and Paul talk about it. Michael and I talk about it, and Paul and I talk about it, and now Paul and I are going to spend you know an hour and a bit talking about the ladder and how we reflect on it for Clean Technica's audience. So, Paul. Tell us about why you care about hydrogen and and your thoughts on it.
2: Sure. So I guess a little history is is helpful here. I've been making and using hydrogen and syngas for my whole career. In fact, uh, all the way back to my master's degree. And the thing that I find interesting about hydrogen is that it's at once extremely important for decarbonization, it's, it's something that we do actually have to decarbonize for our future. It's critically important to that future. And at the same time, it can kind of be a bit of a, a, a Trojan horse for the fossil fuel industry. And in fact, at the moment, it's, it's both things at the same time. And this business of hopium, I think, also uh, bears some definition uh, it's not a term that I invented. It's one that I latched onto as soon as I heard about it, though, because I found it so perfectly described uh, what we're dealing with in, in relation to this most recent round of hydrogen marketing hyperbole that we're we're finding out in the world. Uh, Michael Liebreich defines it differently, but I, the way I define it is that hopium is the drug that's made out of our own hope that's then used to overcome our mental faculties and separate us or our governments from their money. And that's what's going on with hydrogen to a large degree. And I find that to be really unfortunate because what it's doing is it's diverting public money away that would actually help with decarbonization.
1: And it's diverting money away from things that would actually help in the hydrogen decarbonization yeah, exactly, specifically
2: exactly exactly Michael you nailed it you nailed it and so I had lots of I've had lots of conversations as you have with uh, Michael Liebreich and I I find him to be a very thoughtful commentator but Michael's not a chemical engineer and so some of the things on his original he's up to you know version four, point something of his uh, of his uh ladder now and I had quite a few conversations with him back and forth about it uh to try to Shape it and maybe communicate things a little bit better. And he's he's come to a point where it's getting pretty close to being something that I agree with. It's not a hundred percent, but it's it's yeah. getting.
1: And, and it's getting to to my point. So uh, let me describe the ladder for the sake yeah. of people who don't have it. And you know, for anybody who's reading this on Clean Technic or listening to the podcast, having linked from a Clean Technic article that'll be emerging around this, I'm going to make sure that the ladder is in there. But it's a ranking. Of A, B, C, D, E, F, G, with A's being the uses of hydrogen that are unavoidable and G's being the uncompetitive uses and gradations in between. And Michael spent a lot of time talking with people like Paul and others and experts and gets it kind of close. It's closer than almost anything else out there. It's a very useful thing because it talks about all the different places where there's projected use of hydrogen in little bubbles. And then it ranks them based upon the like, what effectively becomes the likelihood of them actually being used in that space. So it's well, a really useful thing. Perhaps
2: better, not to pound it uh, too far down, but perhaps a better way to think about it is the uses that will be helpful for decarbonization and will actually be implemented, and the uses where hydrogen doesn't make sense as a decarbonization strategy at all.
1: Yep, And, you know, to be clear, Paul and I can com- concur with this and concur with, you know, uh, Michael on this. Down at the bottom, uh, metro trains and buses, fuel cell cars, urban delivery, two and three wheelers, all uncompetitive. Ground transportation is virtually, uh, is off the charts. And, and to be clear, rural trains and regional trucks aren't down in the G category, they're down in the F category, which means they're deeply unlikely. So. Transportation. Paul and Michael and I all agree that transportation, ground transportation, is not where hydrogen has any value to speak of. But it is a place where the fossil fuel industry is heavily promoting hydrogen with the hope of perpetuating fossil fuels. So, Paul, what, what do you talk about? How fossil fuels and hydrogen play together? What, what where where does hydrogen come from in the fossil fuel world?
2: Sure. So I think it's really important to think about hydrogen as it is, because I think a lot of people are unfamiliar with just how prevalent hydrogen is in the world right now. It's easy to miss, but it's a more than $120 billion a year business. And between hydrogen and synthesis gas, which is mixtures of hydrogen with carbon monoxide, we're using 120 million tons of hydrogen a year for uses that are basically, they they basically don't include using hydrogen as a fuel for either transport or heating. So that sounds like a lot. And I realize that large numbers uh, are hard to get your mind around, but it is really very much a lot. And the thing that, that you have to keep in mind is that basically, substantially, all of that hydrogen in the world right now, is made from fossil fuels without carbon capture. So by my calculations, there's about 4% of hydrogen in the world that's made kind of unintentionally by accident as a result of uh, side reactions that happen in the chloralkali business where we're making things like uh, chlorine and bleach and uh, caustic soda, sodium hydroxide, things like that. So, about 4% of the hydrogen in the world is made that way. And electricity in the whole world, as an average of kilowatt hours used, is about one third green or non emitting, and about two thirds made from fossils. So, if you take that 4% and you figure that one third of that is green, you can claim that about 1.3% of hydrogen in the world is green. But really, when people talk about green hydrogen, what they mean is Hydrogen that's made deliberately by electrolyzing water using green electricity for the ex- express purpose of making hydrogen. And that is less than 0.1% of hydrogen production in the world right now. So basically, if you're going to think of hydrogen, it's all black. By black, I mean it's made with CO2 emissions. So about 1.3% of hydrogen can be claimed to be green, but when people are talking about green hydrogen, they generally mean hydrogen that's made by electrolyzing water using green electricity. And that represents only less than 0.1% of hydrogen production in the world. It just doesn't, we don't do it that way right now because it's too expensive. So when you think of hydrogen, Hydrogen should be thought of as black stuff that's, in fact, at least 30 percent blacker in terms of its emissions per joule or per kilowatt hour of energy that it contains than the fossil fuel itself that it was made from. And that's a massive problem in the world because some of the high merit order uses of hydrogen are for things that we really they're really important to us. I mean, they determine whether or not we can feed ourselves for, for one thing. So
1: let's just talk about the two paths, the two primary paths, natural gas and coal. Right. Okay. So about
2: 25% of world hydrogen is made from coal and that's really dirty and emissive. And it's largely done in China and India and places like that. But most of the rest of the world makes its hydrogen, when it wants to make hydrogen on purpose, it makes its hydrogen from natural gas. And uh, natural gas is, of course, fossil gas. That's mostly methane. And the balance, the middle bit is made from petroleum and it's used in all of that is used in refining petroleum. So it's kind of that that part's kind of a wash, if you will. So when you think of of hydrogen production in the world, you're thinking about something that's made from coal or from natural gas with all of the CO2 that results being dumped into the atmosphere. And how much CO2 is that? It's a lot. It's a gigantic amount. Reports vary as to the total percentage of greenhouse gas emissions that that represents. But just just to put it in context, if we're, we're talking about coal, it can be up to 30 kilograms of CO2 emitted for every kilogram of hydrogen that you make. And from natural gas, it's closer to 10 And then on top of it, you have the methane emissions. And as you probably know, methane is 86 times worse than CO2 on the 20-year time horizon. So leaking even a very small amount of methane from the front portion of the process, you know, drilling the wells, collecting the natural gas, and then getting it to the hydrogen plant can represent... Almost an equal amount of equivalent CO two uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So it's really uh, a very dirty gas right now in the world.
1: Yeah, and and to be clear, the fossil fuel industry's hope is to take all those venues of transportation, which currently consume massive amounts of petroleum, and instead have them consume equivalent energy amounts of hydrogen. Right. Which which is. Um, Paul, do you, have you done the math on this? I haven't done the math oh, on this. In, in terms of how much hydrogen we would need to do that, it's just mind and what And what would the CO2 increase be?
2: Well, let's assume that the two processes are, are roughly equivalent. The, uh, the net increase in CO2 would be about uh, on the order of about 30%. Hydrogen's let's... trouble as a fuel. The fundamental problem with hydrogen as a fuel is that it's neither efficient. So it's not energy efficient. You lose a lot of energy when you make it. But it's neither efficient nor is it effective. So, gasoline, you know, it's not an efficient fuel either. We use it in gasoline engines and they're only, you know, 15 to 25% efficient on their own. And, but we, we love gasoline because it's so effective. Like, you know, it's a liquid, it's easy to transport, you can pour it into your tank really fast and it's, it's not too terribly expensive either. So we, we trade efficiency for greater effectiveness all the time, and gasoline's kind of the definition of that. But hydrogen's trouble is it's neither efficient nor effective. It's wasteful as a way of using a fossil fuel because there's all these conversion losses associated with making it. And then once you've made it, it's the lightest gas next to helium well, in fact, it's lighter than it's lighter than helium. And it's very diffusive. It, it explodes at low concentrations. It's a very wide explosive range. It's got all kinds of problems with it that make it ineffective. But its biggest problem is it's just too big. It its energy density per unit volume is very low. And that's that's its problem. So it's so not let's, let's,
1: I I mean, I, you're you're the engineer here. I I just play one on the internet half the time you know, and and I make sure people understand that I'm not actually an engineer as much as possible. But do that comparison, because one of the things that hydrogen advocates related to transportation keep saying is the energy density is really high. And you just said the opposite. So right. tease
2: apart the two types of energy density. Please. Yeah, it's a very important point, Michael. So there's a lot of truth that's being told out there with head nodding yes, but the, the corresponding truth that needs to be told with head nodding, no, isn't happening. And so that's the thing that you hear about hydrogen. You you hear things like it's the most abundant element, which is true, right? But it's meaningless. It's never found by itself. So you have to make it from other things. And then the other thing that they say is it's got a really high energy density per unit mass. And that's true. In fact, it's got an energy density per unit mass. It's about three times as good as methane as an example. But the trouble is its energy density per unit volume is a third that of methane, round numbers. So it's it's actually almost a quarter, one over 3.5 times as much as methane. So its energy density per unit volume is very low. And its energy density per unit mass is not really a fair comparison either, because, you know, a gasoline tank, the mass of the tank itself relative to the mass of gasoline that it contains, it's really quite small. Whereas a hydrogen tank, you have two choices. You can store hydrogen as either a gas under very high pressure, or you can store it as a liquid at very, very low temperature. And by very low temperature, I mean 24 Kelvin, 24 degrees above absolute zero is its normal boiling point. So neither of those choices are massless, you know, they, they need to have a really strong pressure vessel in order to store hydrogen at high pressure. And by high pressure, we're talking about 700 atmospheres of pressure here, 10,000 PSI. So these uh, pressures are very high. And as a consequence, you need a lot of strength of materials in order to withstand them. And so if the tank isn't massless, the energy density per unit mass of Fuel plus tank is not actually all that high either. Yeah. And so no, I, when you work I, it out, when you look at when you compare electric vehicles, which I really firmly believe in, against hydrogen vehicles, what you find is that in, in fact uh, two vehicles with the same range—the Toyota Mirai and the uh, Tesla Model Three Long Range version—the the Toyota Mirai is actually heavier. It's. It's heavier than, than the, the Tesla, despite having the Tesla having basically the same range on a charge. So the mass—it only contains five kilograms of hydrogen. The tank weighs hundreds of kilograms.
0: Clean tech talk is brought to you by Voltus, a leading technology platform connecting distributed energy resources to electricity markets, delivering less expensive, more reliable, and more sustainable electricity. Voltus is on a mission to help solve the climate crisis by unlocking the full value of distributed energy resources. and we want your help getting there. To view our open positions, visit voltus.co/clingtechnica. That's www.voltus.co forward/clingtechnica.
1: I did this math once and I, you know I think I got it right. So I like to make the comparison. It's, this is like a you know a pretty standard hydrogen cylinder. Right. There's one. The K cylinder weighs about 65 kilograms, about 143 pounds. That's how much the delivered thing ha- weighs. That's right. All right. So this is like a a person. This is mm-hmm. not a small person. It's 143 pound person, and it contains about two, you know, 7.2 cubic meters of hydrogen, or about 255 cubic feet. You know, so that sounds like a lot, but when you do the math, it turns out to be 60% of a kilogram, 0. 0.6 kg or about yeah. 1.3 pounds. That's right. So, so you've got this 143 pound cylinder that contains 1.3 pounds of hydrogen. And that's and the of course, point. We, we, we
2: engineers are clever. So if you give us a problem like that, we say, ah, we can find higher strength to weight ratio things than steel cylinders to lug it around in. So what they actually do is in in vehicles that use hydrogen is they use these very thin aluminum cylinders that they then overwrap with uh, very strong composite materials, carbon fiber type materials, and they they re- they end up with a tank that that weighs less than a steel tank by a considerable amount, but still. You're talking about this is another thing that people don't get. So not only do you have to compress this gas to a very high pressure and you need a strong vessel in order to keep it uh, contained, but while you're doing that you're adding mechanical energy to the fuel, all of which you lose when you expand it again. The, The fuel cell car doesn't use any of that energy productively, it wastes all of it. And it's not a small amount of energy. The calculation that I did few years ago, looked at the five kilograms of hydrogen in a Toyota Mirai, and the mechanical potential energy stored in that 700 bar hydrogen, five kilograms of it, was approximately equal to the potential energy of that car suspended 500 meters in the air. (laughs) Which is not the same, Michael, as saying that, you know, if you let it go all at once, it would propel the car 500 meters in the air. It's not the same thing but it's no. basically, you know, it's letting you know that you're storing a lot of mechanical energy and there's a lot of mechanical energy trying to make that hydrogen leak out of that tank and all the piping and fittings and so on. So it's not a trivial exercise. And then liquid, you think, okay, great. Well, let's make the liquid. Well, making the liquid consumes 40% of the energy in the hydrogen. But it's even worse than that because it's 40% of the energy in the hydrogen in the form of electricity that you have to put in to liquefy it. And even so, whereas that 700 atmosphere hydrogen in the pressurized tank was 40 kilograms per cubic meter. The hydrogen liquid is only 71 kilograms a cubic meter. And that's the limit. You're not going to find a way to store hydrogen as hydrogen molecules, you know, with some magic adsorbent or whatever, you're not going to find a way to store it at more than 71 kilograms per cubic meter, because that's the volume of it as a liquid. (laughs) Okay, so that's already prohibitively gigantic, especially when you look at applications like aircraft. I mean you can just forget about hydrogen for jet aircraft that have to fly across oceans. It's just not practical because it's too big. Yeah and to, I'm just gonna raise the level of
1: abstraction a bit here and, and, and summarize what Paul's been saying for the past few minutes, which is one, yeah, it's the most common molecule in the universe, but it's bound tightly with really hard to break bonds. To everything else, it doesn't exist freely in any way that we can just get at easily. So it takes a lot of energy to get it. Statement two: Yeah, it's it's high energy density per mass, but the volume problem as a the lightest gas in the universe means that we have to spend a lot of energy to get it down into usable volumes for anything like transportation. And and those that combination is there. The third problem, you know, I, I. I know that I spend a lot of time looking at hydrogen fuel cell car uh, engineering and a couple of, you know, people who'd spent a lot of time with it. And there's the entire thermal management side, which doesn't, I don't think, get quite enough attention in terms of managing all that thermal energy going into gas and coming out of gas. And I, I think, Paul, you're a perfect person to ask this. of. Doesn't the temperature change a lot? Don't you have to manage that through the fuel cycle?
2: Okay. So there's a couple things. The the first thing I would, I would say is that the, you know, the biggest problem with hydrogen in my view is just the fact that, that there are too many steps. So you first, you have to separate hydrogen from whatever it's bound to like water as an example, or methane. And there's a big loss there at barest minimum. It's about 30% of the energy in the hydrogen gets lost or in the feed uh, feed or energy source gets lost in that step. And then you've got to compress it or liquefy it. So you lose between 10 and 40% of the energy in that step. And then now you've got to feed it to something that's going to convert it back basically into electricity or or heat energy or feed it into an engine and try to produce mechanical energy from it. And you get even more losses there. And because of that three-step mess that you're in, you end up losing most of the energy that you fed. But, The thermal thing, the thermal thing goes to people, you know, the claim that people make about hydrogen being really easy to rapidly refuel. Okay. You know, they, people are imagining that hydrogen is just like gasoline. You can just kind of pour it into a tank, although it's a gas, you know, you're just going to hook up a hose and open a valve and it's just going to flow into the tank and everything's going to be happy. Oh, Oh boy. It's not quite so simple because it's at 700 bar, 700 atmospheres pressure. And it has this property that's called a negative joule thomson coefficient. So when you let it expand, it heats up. It doesn't cool down. So you actually have to pre-cool it so that when you're pushing it into the vehicle, it doesn't overheat the tank that's receiving it. So that it would be very different. It was a different gas. Most gases are not hydrogen. They don't have a negative Joule-Thompson coefficient. And, and as a consequence, this problem doesn't exist for them to the same degree, In fact, cooling might be a problem for those gases, but in the the case of hydrogen, it actually heats up. So that's a bit of a problem. And in fact, it's a problem that was experienced recently by Toyota. Toyota ran a hydrogen car, not a fuel cell car, a hydrogen engine car in an endurance race that's called the Fuji 24 Hours. And uh, there's an article about this that I, that I read and they were talking about uh, the infrastructure that was needed to fuel that car to run it for 24 hours. And it basically rolled in on about four tractor trailers. So it was two full tube trailers full of hydrogen. Then there was a tractor trailer full of compression and cooling equipment. And then another tractor trailer full of, you know, fossil fuel generators to, to run all of that stuff. And that was needed to fuel one car for one 24 hour race. And the amazing thing is it spent, the car spent four of those 24 hours being refueled. And the problem wasn't, you know, opening a valve and shoving hydrogen to the tank. The problem was all this cooling that we were just talking about. So, uh, yeah, I mean, conceptually it's very simple in the details though, the devil's hiding. And in fact, he's not really hiding. He's kind of waving his pitchfork at you. And this
1: is one of the points I make, you know, when I, I talk about grid storage and I talk about hydrogen versus other things for grid storage, as you know, one of the things people keep coming back and say, well, pumped air storage and, you know, stuff like that. I said, well, thermal
2: management. Yeah, well, pumped air storage is all about thermal management and, and with hydrogen, the, the challenge is you have to put all this energy in, in order to get it to a volume where storage is, is practical, but it just doesn't make practical sense in economic terms. To put in the machinery necessary to try to recover any of that energy. Most of the energy that you put in gets lost as heat out of the compressors and it's low grade. It's not really useful for anything Yeah, and you don't get it back.
1: Nope.
2: So it's gone.
1: Yeah. Entropy. Okay. This is why Paul uh, and I and Michael agree that almost all right, ground transportation is dead for hydrogen. That doesn't mean it's dead for a lot of useful things but when people talk about hydrogen for transportation, they're buying the wrong parts of the messages, and they're seductive parts of the messages, and so don't be seduced. But let's right. talk about something where, you know, you. I've talked with Mark Zed Jacobson about this, and I've talked with you about it. We haven't really dug into it. Personally, beyond just headlines, my assertion is that you know, oceanic shipping is a potential market that has not been disproven for hydrogen transportation. I suspect it'll turn into biofuels or synfuels of some sort, but it, it's not off the charts. And Michael Liebrich has that as a B category. Yeah. And I I don't think you and I particularly disagree on that one. But long haul aviation. Let me just start with aviation in general. You know, in a couple of weeks, I'll be talking to the CEO of Heart uh, Aerospace, a Swedish electric airplane startup who has, you know, 19 passenger regional planes with 400 kilometer ranges pre-ordered. You know, so I think that, you know, short haul, like from where I sit in Vancouver to Vancouver Island to visit my mom or, you know, Island airport in Toronto uh, which I flew out of all the time to London or Hamilton, for example, would be perfectly suitable for those types of things. Short and medium haul within continents, I think medium haul within continents is going to be battery electric, and so it's long haul that's the problem.
2: Cost, yeah. So, so let's let's just clarify what you just said there, Michael, because I I think it wasn't really as uh, clear as uh, it as could as be. Totally, I think both agree that electric is going to be what's done for short and medium haul aviation. I I certainly think that that's the case. I I don't see hydrogen as having any inherent advantages over electric for short haul or medium haul, but electric's not feasible for long haul and won't be until we uh, invent, basically the way I've put it, uh, and I think it's accurate, is we have to invent something as much better than lithium ion than lithium ion was better than lead acid. For that to be the case, for us to be able to get a you know a transoceanic jetliner to fly on batteries, that's what it would take. It would take another giant breakthrough in batteries, and it took us a hundred years for the one that we did to, to get to lithium ion from lead acid. So I think we can say conclusively that that one's a, that's a hard problem. It's not impossible to solve. There's no thermodynamics in the way of solving it, but it's a hard one. Yeah but, yeah, and and so, the question is, what do you do with jet aircraft? Because you know I think there's there are lots of people that, from a sustainability perspective, just see you know flying is a bad thing, and we should just do less of it. and they and they're they're probably right. I mean, I, I think flying used to be a luxury and then it became kind of a commodity. And it probably does ultimately have to become a luxury again just because of the contrails and other problems that are associated with flying.
1: Well, let's let's tear this apart because I I went deep on this at one point. And there's kind you of did, yeah yeah there's kind of two or three problems with long haul aviation. One is contrails at night, specifically at the altitude they're at, have yeah. very high global warming implications. Basically, they put you know they they put water vapor in the wrong place where it captures more heat and reflects more infrared than it would otherwise. Second right. problem is um, when you burn kerosene, you end up with nitrous oxides, and nitrous oxides as greenhouse gases are Hundreds of times more global warming potential than CO2, and so you've got that problem. And then you've got the CO2 from the flying, because um, yeah. kerosene is a hydrocarbon, a hydro, you know, hydrogen plus carbon fuel in a certain mixture with certain characteristics. And you pump it into engines and you burn it, and guess what comes out at the end? Carbon dioxide. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the three problems. You've got contrails, you got nitrous oxides, and Paul has been helping me understand more about why nitrous oxides I should be paying more attention to.
2: We'll yeah, to nitrogen the- oxides, there's three of them. Two of them. Two of them matter. One of them is toxic, but not persistent. That's the one we worry about at ground level because it causes, uh, it's a precursor to photochemical smog. It's very, very bad in our houses. Uh, it causes asthma it's produced anytime you burn any fuel in air. The other one is nitrous oxide, which is not toxic, but it's extremely environmentally persistent. And it's funny. And yeah, it is. It's funny. It, it, it's, it's
1: laughing it's, gas,
2: by the way, yeah, folks. it's laughing gas. <laughs> and it's produced by both natural and human caused uh, processes, but it's a really persistent greenhouse gas. It sticks around for a long time and it's an extremely powerful one and very worrisome. So from my perspective, this is where I, I kind of disagree with Michael. I mean, he gives this a fairly high ranking. And from my perspective, when I look at long haul aviation, the problems I see for hydrogen are that aircraft have to push their fuel through the air against drag. That's one of the fundamental th- properties of aircraft. That's one of the things they have to do. So the way you get around, with that, uh, get around that to some degree with uh, kerosene is you put the fuel in the wings because it's a liquid, and you can pump it around from wing to wing, and, and you can fit the wings uh, sorry, the tanks in the portions of the wing that just need to be there in order to give the, the wing the right shape. So you're occupying space that you would otherwise need to have anyway. And things kind of work out, and you end up kind of having your fuel hidden from drag, if you will. The trouble with hydrogen is you can't do that. You can't, for instance, so first of all, for jet aircraft, forget about compressed hydrogen. It's just not possible. For the medium haul ones or short haul ones, maybe you could get away with compressed hydrogen, but for the long haul ones, you need liquid. And you can't put liquid in the wings. I mean, you can't put compressed hydrogen in the wings either. It's just the wrong shape. So as a consequence of that fact, you basically have to make the airplane either longer or you need to make it bigger in diameter. And there's only so much longer you can make them and have them still kind of work. I'm not an aviation engineer, so I won't go into the details there, but I do know that that is the case. So you either lose passenger or cargo space to fit the tanks, or you make the plane bigger in diameter, in which case there's more drag. So to, to uh, get to the destination for the same amount of energy, it would have to fly slower. And the whole, and part of the whole reason that you, you want to take a jet is to be able to get there in a reasonable period of time. Otherwise, you take a boat. So, you know, ultimately the, I see those things as being uh, big problems for hydrogen, but the other problems for hydrogen as an aviation fuel are the fueling logistics. So a lot of the places where hydrogen is pushed in as the solution to a problem that batteries won't solve yet, they don't work because of fuel logistics and aviation is one of those examples. So you, you not only need to have hydrogen at the place that your plane takes off from, But you need to have hydrogen at every place that the plane could possibly have to land at. You know, it could be diverted due to weather or problems at the airport or whatever. And you can't have a plane land somewhere where it can't be refueled. So you have to roll out this enormous cost of hydrogen infrastructure in order to make that possible. You also need new aircraft, totally new, designed from scratch. So you can see why hydrogen as a solution to decarbonize aircraft, is popular with some aircraft manufacturers. It's not something that airlines are pushing, believe me. So if you ask me what's the solution for jet aircraft, it's biofuels. And will there be enough biofuels to decarbonize jet aircraft? Yes, there absolutely will be. The the question isn't whether there'll be enough for jet aircraft. The question is, will there be enough for jet aircraft and everything else we need to do with biofuels? And that's an open question. Yeah, and to be clear,
1: biofuels don't fix contrails or nitrous oxides. That's right, but hydrogen doesn't fix contrails or nitrous oxide either. Uh huh. So tell me why <laughs> a hydrogen fuel cell airplane wouldn't fix nitrous oxides and. Well, stress. first of all,
2: if it's a jet, it won't be a fuel cell. It's it, it will it will need to feed hydrogen to the engines. Uh, so we fuel
1: cell. So uh, your your assumption is that the electric jet engines that are electrically powered are not going to be fit for purpose at this point.
2: Yeah. And, and Michael, I think you alluded to one of the reasons before, and that's thermal management. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of compensate to some degree with the boiling of, of liquid hydrogen, but it only helps a little bit. You end up with, uh, in a fuel cell, you end up with this device, which will fundamentally, ultimately likely need to be inside the, inside the vehicle, inside the fuselage. And it has to Dissipate a tremendous amount of heat because they're not very efficient. I mean, they're 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 more efficient than gasoline engines, but they're frankly not more efficient than jet engines. The big turbofans that they use in jets, they're about as efficient as a fuel cell that you can afford to buy. So I, I really don't think fuel cells are the way that people are going to go with big, big engines. And as a consequence, you end up with the hydrogen being burned in air in the engine, which means NOX. Uh, Nitrogen oxides that we were just talking about being bad for a couple of reasons. You also end up with a lot of moisture, which generates the contrail. And the trouble with hydrogen is the the flame temperature is higher than than the flame temperature of normal fuels, of the sorts of kerosene fuels or the biofuel equivalents that we would use to replace kerosene. The flame temperature is higher. And when the flame temperature is higher, the amount of NOx generated is higher. So, and you can't fit a catalyst on there and make that work because of the way that the engines are, are ported. The exhaust comes out with the jet stream, if you will. And so there's no way to capture those emissions and put them through a, a, a catalyst in order to remove the, uh, the NOx like you would on a big stationary engine. So you're kind of stuck in it, Like I say, I, not to be, belabor it, but I think biofuels are the solution and they're, uh, you're dead, right, Michael? They're, they're not a total solution. You will still end up with greenhouse gas and warming potential as a result of the use of those for flying. So we're also going to have to reduce how much flying we do.
1: Well, there's good news there too, because contrails are, uh, the, the global warming potential of contrails are a function of time of day and altitude. Mm-hmm. And so operational changes to especially night flights, longer night flights to put them at lower altitudes, which is problematic from a fuel uh, and efficiency perspective, but beneficial for global warming perspective, which means there's a compromise that is viable in there somewhere means we can avoid a bunch of contrails to your point with biofuels we can get a relatively carbon low carbon biofuels sufficient for most longer haul aviation, especially since we get rid of all the short and medium haul aviation fuel requirements. And so- and
2: Almost all of the land transport too. So, yeah. you know, it, it, here's, here's the other thing. And I think this might be, I, I mean, to, to my mind, it's the only kind of carbon capture that makes any sense to me at all. And that is that if we really value flying, And by value it, I mean, we're willing to pay quite a lot of money to do it, which I I think, honestly, for the applications that make the most sense for flying as opposed to alternatives like uh, rapid trains and the like, we really should value it because it really is uh, something that provides a lot of benefit. Then what we can do is we can, when we make the biofuel, we can make it in such a way that we make basically charcoal, what people are calling biochar. And that material will contain basically all of the inorganic stuff that was in the biomass, the, the wood or corn stover or sugar, sugar cane bagasse or whatever it was you were starting with. It'll not only contain all of that stuff, which you can put back into the soil and release to plants so that they can use it as a fertilizer again, but it also helps to improve the soil texture and it doesn't biodegrade. So it's, it's basically permanently stored carbon, that came from the atmosphere in the first place by virtue of plants using solar energy. And as a consequence for every mile you fly, you will end up actually putting a negative amount of CO2 into the atmosphere. That Mm -hmm. would be pretty wonderful. And that would help to completely meaningfully offset contrail and NOx emissions coming from the uh, coming from the use of the engines so I, I think it really if we make the right policies we use the right fuels and we enable them with the right uh, economic policy the right taxes then we will end up being able to nail uh, aviation without bothering with hydrogen yeah. where we be- might need the hydrogen is to help make more more biofuel so yeah. to help increase yields of biofuel production.
1: Yeah, and that's the point, right? When hydrogen is, you know, necessary, but how much? Right. Um, and for long haul aviation, the last point I'll make is that we've had certified biofuels for aviation replacements for kerosene since twenty eleven. That's right. Commercial jets with passengers on them have flown them in basically demonstrators and pilots, but they're more expensive.
2: That's correct, and that's the key thing. You know, what I do for a living is I help people who are developing new uh, process technology get it from the laboratory through testing at the, at the pilot scale into commercialization. And the real barrier for biofuels, and we did lots and lots of biofuels projects over a period of more than a decade, the big challenge for biofuels was that the people that were doing the projects originally were hoping to make them cheaply enough especially from cellulosic uh, feedstocks, you know, stuff that's not food for for humans. They were hoping to make them cheaply enough that they could compete bare knuckles against fossil fuels. And that's just very difficult. You can't win that battle. If you get to treat the atmosphere as if it was a free public sewer, fossil fuels win. (laughs) They just win. So you need to have that policy in place in order to right that wrong, that economic wrong. Or you can't enable any of the technologies that'll actually help. And this is the thing that drives me crazy is that you you hear hydrogen advocates, for instance, say, well, we have to use hydrogen for aircraft because there are no biofuels. Well, why are there no biofuels? For the same reason that we don't use hydrogen as a fuel. And yeah, (laughs) hydrogen is
1: going to be so I did the math for carbon engineering. Yes. And that you you cite me on that quite regularly, and oh
2: yeah, that's a company I love to hate.
1: Well, and to be clear, I I have developed a lot of chemical engineering nerd fans because of that. Um, You know, I'm I'm working with Agora Energy Technologies and their CO2 based redox flow battery because the PhDs of chemical engineering who are the founders and president and CEO of that company are nerd became nerd fans of mine based upon my takedown of carbon (laughs) engineering. (laughs) but the point that I was going to make out of that and in my analysis, I went through all the studies and research in terms of the costs of hydrogen. And you and I have some, probably have a good discussion about that at some point, possibly on this call. I don't think it's particularly relevant, but I think it will become relevant to certain aspects, but the biofuels were cheaper than any synthetic fuel and hydrogen was a major component of any synthetic fuels cost. It's just expensive,
2: yeah. And the trouble, the the trouble is this. All of the so-called e-fuels or synthetic fuels, it doesn't matter which one you pick. The kind of the ones that people are most excited about are ammonia and methanol. And then the others are kind of more speculative, bigger molecules. Bodies,
1: blue they're, diesel, and yeah, they're
2: high, they're they're much, much harder. But the easy ones are ammonia and, and methanol, and, and then everything else. The trouble is that substantially all of the energy in those fuels that you make has to be provided in the form of hydrogen. So you make, you take electricity and water, you make hydrogen, and then you waste most of the energy in the hydrogen trying to reduce uh, chemically reduce CO two back to fuels. And it's basically like trying to glue Humpty Dumpty back together again. It's thermodynamically difficult. And difficult means lossy, meaning you know, you don't get much energy back for every unit of energy that you feed. And lossy means expensive. And so when you run the numbers, when you look at you know starting with electricity and ending up with mechanical energy back out the back end of, uh, of an engine or something like that, if you involve any of these so-called e-fuels, you're lucky to get back 10% of the energy that you fed the front end 10% you lose 90% of the energy that you're feeding that's expensive even if electricity is really cheap and there's all this capital cost associated with all this equipment you have to have electrolyzers to make hydrogen and compressors and storage tanks and then chemical plants to and something to capture co2 it's just kind of a fantasy in my view i don't i don't get it it's just so much smarter to cut out the CO2 middleman. If you're starting with electricity, use electricity. And and for most applications, you can just do it, you know, either, interme- either directly or with a battery as an intermediary.
0: Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks.